Our reading is taken from Genesis chapter 38, and it can be found on page 32 of the Church Bibles. And it says this. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite, whose name was Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him, and Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that his offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste semen on the ground, so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house, till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. He and his friend Hira, the Adolamites, And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enen, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been there. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said that no prostitute No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out, and let her be burned. As she was was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. 
Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out her hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with the scarlet cord on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Thank you, Mackie. Do keep that text open. We're going to be looking at that together as an outline of where we're going in the um, service sheet, if you find that helpful. And at the end, there'd be an opportunity for any questions or comments. But let's first pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is good, truthful, and sovereign. And pray, please, in our response to your word now, that we would listen, trust, and obey and therefore vindicate you as our God and we your people. In Jesus' name, Amen. Joseph and his amazing technicolored dream coat is a musical by Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber that was that's popularized the story of Joseph, including hits such as Any Dream Will Do, Close Every Door, and Give Me My Coloured Coat. I saw it years ago at the Crucible in Sheffield. But I don't remember the bit about Judah and Tamar. The story jumped straight from Joseph being sold by his brothers in Genesis 37 to the account of Joseph and Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39. What meaning is lost with the account of Judah and Tamar being dropped? Reading through the book of Genesis, it does appear at first sight that the story of Judah and Tamar is a digression from the narrative of Joseph. There is a sudden switch of focus from Joseph, who's now on his way to Egypt, uh, Genesis 37, verse 36, to Judah's marriage, Genesis 38, verse 2, which can throw the reader. Genesis 38 seems quite self-contained, and one wonders what it's doing interrupting the larger story. The problem with this is that we've forgotten what chapters 37 to 50 are all about. These chapters are not headed by, this is the story of Joseph, Rather, have a look back at 37, verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. That's the heading. These are the generations of Jacob. And Jacob had a number of sons. And so it's not surprising that sons of Jacob, other than Joseph, come on the scene. 
Now, Judah was first introduced to us as the fourth son of Leah, back in Genesis 29, verse 35, after Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. And he's mentioned again in Genesis 37, verse 26, being involved in the sale of his brothers, uh, and sale of his brother to traders. Now, the theme of the account of Judah in Genesis 38 ought to be familiar to us by now. It's the theme of descendants. The concern of the narrative is whether Judah will have offspring. Judah's moved into a particular area where the Canaanites thrived, and he married a local Canaanite woman. He had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now, when Ur, his first son, displeased the Lord, he died. Verse 7. Onan, his brother, refused to do the duty of a brother-in-law. He should have married Ur's wife, Tamar. By doing so, he would have raised up descendants to carry on his brother's name. Onan refused and likewise died. Verse 10. Shelah, the last son of Judah, was promised to Tamar. But Tamar saw that he would not be given to her. Verse 11. So she took matters into her own hands. Disguised as a prostitute, she seduced her father-in-law. And the text concludes with the birth of grandchildren of Judah, Perez and Zerah. So the account is not as strange as we might first think. It's in the ballpark of what we've already read in Genesis, a concern for descendants of this particular family. And whether it's Abraham's wife being barren, or a wife needing to be found for Isaac, or the threat of Jacob being destroyed by the Canaanites, or here in Genesis 38, the provision of an heir for Judah, they're all obstacles that threaten the future of Abraham's line. And each time the narrative concludes with how these obstacles are overcome in one way or another. Now, one of the interesting details in the text is there in Genesis 38, verse 16. 38, 16. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. Judah makes a comparison between Tamar and himself, and he concludes that Tamar is more righteous than he. How are we to understand this? In what way is she more righteous? Well, Judah had acted in such a way that his line would not have continued. Judah had failed to let his son marry Tamar as promised. Tamar, on the other hand, had acted in such a way as to secure offspring. Her ingenuity 
led to the birth of Perez and Zerah. In other words, Judah's actions led to the end of the line, whereas Tamar is concerned to continue the line. God had promised Abraham descendants as numerous as the stars in the night sky. But if a point was reached when there were no descendants, then where would that leave the promise? There would be no descendants, and the promise would die with that last generation. Tamar had a concern for offspring that was not shared by Judah. Now, quite how aware she was of the promise, we can't be sure. But she nevertheless acted so as to advance the promise. And like Judah, Tamar was concerned to perpetuate the family line to produce descendants for Abraham. The righteousness in view here is related to acting in line with God's purpose for the world. But there is a twist. For who is Tamar? Nothing is said of her background, but she would appear to be a Canaanite. Just as Judah took a wife from the Canaanites, verse 2, so he also took one for Ur, verse 6. In which case, she is a Gentile. So here in Genesis 38, the future of Judah's line is at stake. The obstacles raised are raised by Judah and his own family. Judah didn't share the purpose of God and was obstructing it for others. And it was Tamar, a Gentile woman, who believed more in the promise than they. She was more righteous than the chosen people to whom she was related in marriage. If it had not been her ingenuity, the promise would have been lost. This account of Judah's offspring doesn't find parallels with his other offspring. Now, we don't have accounts like Genesis 38 for all the other sons of Jacob. It would appear that Judah is of particular interest. It is of particular interest that Judah has offspring and that these obstacles are overcome. Why? Why is the concern for this particular line, the line of Judah, to continue? One of the things that we were thinking about uh, last week was Well, while there is a value in enjoying the ride and seeing the storyline of the Bible unfold and not rushing too too quickly to jump to the end, when we do become more familiar with the storyline, there is great value in reading earlier earlier parts of the Bible in light of later parts and of joining the dots and seeing the coherence of the whole. Now, as you read the Bible more and more, this kind of thing can happen quite in quite an organic way. 
you know, in the past, we've talked about sort of iterations to our Bible reading. Each time we read through is another iteration where further connections can be made and a deeper understanding reached. But let me give you an example of this uh, from Genesis uh, 38, chapter 38. I wonder what you think of Genesis 38, verse 18. In response to Tamar's request for a pledge, Judah said, verse 18, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. The pledge that Tamar requested consisted of three items. Judah's signet, his cord, and his staff. And in the first instance, these items are significant for the role that they play later in the chapter. For it's these items that identify Judah and brought about his confession and the vindication of Tamar. But there is also an irony in the items that she is given that comes to light when we read later on in Genesis chapter 49. Let me show you. Have a look with me at Genesis 49. It's what I read earlier. It's here that Jacob calls his sons together and tells each one what will happen to them in the future. And we're just going to focus in. Consider what he says to Judah. So from verse 8. Judah your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Here we learn that of all the tribes, it would be Judah who will rule. That from Judah, kings will come. And three things that we learn in particular about Judah. One, Judah will conquer his enemies. He will place his hand on their neck, which is reminiscent of the blow to the head that defeats the serpent promised in Genesis 3. Two, Jacob will extend rule from his own nation to that of all the peoples of the earth. And the prophecy fosters this expectation of a descendant from Judah whose dominion will encompass the whole world. Three, this dynasty will renew creation. So much so that vines will serve as hitching posts for donkeys and wine will be used for washing clothes. Now the symbol or means of that rule, is given in verse 10. 
The means by which Judah will rule the nations is by the scepter or the ruler's staff. Now, when this is known, there is a certain irony that Judah gives Tamar his staff in Genesis 38. Because through her, kings will come. She is providing the heir. And we can now make that connection. It's a connection that's brought out later in the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. It is the line through whom David will come and that finally the Lord Jesus Christ will come. We began by asking why the Joseph story is interrupted by the Judah story. What would we lose if we missed Genesis 38 out? And we've seen that the Joseph story is not complete. It's part of a bigger narrative, a narrative that emerges from the line of Judah. Joseph is singled out in his dream as the one before whom his family will bow down. Judah is singled out as the one whom the nations will do the same. The family will bow to Joseph, the nations or bow to Judah. It's from Judah that the big picture of the Joseph story begins to emerge. Let's pray, and I'll open up to any questions or comments you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you uh, have given us uh, your Bible in such a way that it demands that it's um, read in a particular way, that we can't just isolate uh, the Joseph story and enjoy that piecemeal, but that this interruption by Judah and Tamar shows that there is a bigger purpose to Joseph and a bigger plan that involves um, a ruler, a king, emerging from the line of Judah, Um, We thank you that that king has already come in the person of Christ and that therefore we can anticipate that not only will his enemies uh, one day no longer contest his rule, but also that creation will be renewed. But we thank you too that we can enjoy seeing your plan unfold, that that history is recorded for us and that we can see um, the righteousness of Tamar as she aligned aligned herself to your plan and purpose. And pray, please, that we would do the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now is your time. If you have any questions or comments. Back to Joseph next week. Susie.
Okay, so Genesis 49 verse 9, sort of understanding the imagery of the lion's cub and the lioness, that sort of thing. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, let me just uh, pick it up then. Let me read again. Um, I'll pick it up from verse 8. So Judah, your brother, brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son. You have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? So I think in terms of like kind of getting our bearings, I guess it's in the context of Judah ruling. So verse 8 is about the fact that he is going to um, defeat his enemies. And then verse 10, you've got the how um, comprehensive his rule is, that it will include the obedience of all the peoples. So I take it that this imagery of, of the lion is a is 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 a kind of a metaphor of that of that rule. So the whole I think later on, in fact in Revelation, I think it picks up in Revelation five the whole he's the lion of Judah. So this is picking up that it, it's related to the fact that he will defeat his enemies, he will rule the nations. So I think it's that um, it's that kind of picture. I'm not sure I can say that much. I'll, I'll look it up. I didn't. I didn't look at that in that much detail. But I think it's. I think it is that metaphor of, you know, if you're going to pick an animal, that um, communicates ultimate rule. You know, you're not going to pick a an elephant or a a mouse. You know, is that lion is the kind of the king? Is, is the kind of the, yeah is. It seems an appropriate sort of metaphor. I'm not sure we've had the lion. We had the lion news before. I think it might be the first. I think it's here that then later on that imagery is picked up on too in terms of this lion of Judah, which refers to this promise of rule. I think that's all I can do now, but yes, yeah, good. I mean, it's interesting because we wanted, I, I spoke to Tom about this, we wanted to do this now because when Tom's preaching, he's got Genesis 48, 49 and 50, so there's a lot to do. So to make this link then back to Tamar being given the staff, you just think, you know, that's, that's we're not going to have time to do that. So this felt like it was a good time to sort of make that link. Yeah. Anybody else? Has Archie got a hand up? Okay, so thanks, Archie. So you you saying so Tamar had a baby in her tummy, and then Judah was angry, and you don't get why he was angry. Oh yes, why was he angry? 
and that's before he finds out. Yes. So, okay, so am I right in thinking so the answer is related to the fact that when he found out who put the baby there, he, he changed his mind? Yeah, so I think, so if I understand you, initially he's angry because he doesn't, he doesn't know that he put the baby there because he doesn't recognize her. And so it's only when, so let's go back to the text. So, so basically, when Judas sleeps with um, Tamar, she doesn't know who Tamar is, okay? So he does that, but then Tamar goes away and he can't find her. And then he hears that this lady, Tamar, has become pregnant. And he's really cross because... Um, I'm not explaining this very well. He's really cross because uh, that shouldn't have happened. But then she reveals the things that he gave him so that then... Um, he realizes, oh, I'm the daddy. I'm the one who put the baby there. And then he changes his mind. But then he says that line, verse 26, then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. So he started off being angry because he didn't know that he was the daddy. But then when he realized he was, um, actually, she then, he then um, helps her. Yeah. So it's a good, it's a good, it's quite complicated. There's a lot kind of going on. Um, thanks, Archie. Puts us through our paces. Time for one more. Okay, we will leave it there. We're going to sing our next song, uh, Come Behold. <laughs>